Like, why can't they have a different accent on it? It's just so annoying. I want my Britishness to come through. Exactly. Okay, for, for those that weren't aware, we record on Zoom, and that's the accent, and it's just... It's annoying. So AI note taking. I listened to a conference. I say a conference, a webinar, I guess you'd call it, that you did a while back um, about AI note taking. This is before Berlin. And I took some notes and I thought, you know what? Let's talk about AI note taking. And we're, we're now getting to it at this point. The starting th starting point, starting topic that I want to bring up is personal LLMs, because I know you've got some thoughts on that, and I want to hear your opinions so I can um, share my thoughts. Personal LLMs. I like the idea, but also, why? Like, it sounds like a cool idea in theory. Like, it's it's very futuristic-y sounding, and we have our own personal thing, which has all of the thoughts and opinions of us. I have Rewind at the moment. I'm playing and fiddling with it, but I don't really use it. As I'm kind of learning more about, like, the ecological approach, I find it less and less useful. <laughs> To, to put Why? it bluntly, um, because the assumptions were is I had a limited memory store, which means I need to find a place to store all of my memory. So I was using the L, the the having my own personal thing so that I can reference back to stuff. But I I already have one. It's called my obsidian and the environment around me. And like, I already have it. It just doesn't have AI with it. Interesting, and, and I'm not entirely sure how useful that would actually be. This I love the idea. I like the idea of it. It sounds really cool, but after spending fifty, a hundred hours writing and coding with um, ChatGPT Pro and OpenAI and all of that, it's not ready. I don't think it and, and I'm not sure whether it ever will be in yeah. in the way that I would want it to be and how I'd want it to be. I would want it to be able to actually think. But it can't. That's not how it's been built or designed. It's you, just a, this a to me. Yeah relates to the cognitive load theory arguments that we've mm. that we've had a couple of times because and this, so and this, yeah and this is the thing like as i've dived further and deeper into the ecological approach and just like well this is point the assumptions of ai if if we if we if we take the assumptions of of the cognitive approach which is we are basically machines is what the approach says. We are machines that have stores. Then fine, AI can do what we do, but it can't because we're not machines. So then what use is it? Now, I'm not saying it has no use because it can make boring things. It, it can deal with mundane stuff that you don't really want to deal with and that it's 
uniquely situated to do. It can fill in basic gaps of knowledge on code. However, with that said, after experiencing coding something alongside ChatGPT, oh my God, <laughs> you've got to know exactly what you want. And I think I've said this before and I'll say it, it's good. The way that I like to use it is as a brainstorming partner, not as an end result, because it allows me to just bounce ideas where nobody else really wants to bounce ideas off of. Like, you know, when, when it's like... It doesn't get the, bored. Yeah, when they don't get... And it doesn't get bored. So you can constantly bounce ideas off of it. And I think that's... That is, in its current form, its best use case. But even that is still flawed. But I like... Because I, I like arguing with it. Because it tells me that this is not a thing. And I'm like, ha, yes, it is. And this is why. It helps me to refine my own ideas which is a brainstorming partner. It's interesting you're using AI for that. Um, obviously, I try and use people as much as possible because people have varied experiences, which AI just doesn't have. Yes, AI has lots of data, but data doesn't yes. equal information. As we know through the ecological approach, there are different words. Data can be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Information could be that's a pattern from 1 to 10. Yeah. AI, when it's writing, doesn't really recognize that when it's writing answers. So... Yes, AI eventually will be able to recognize language inside of text, maybe inside of voice, but voice detection would need to be better. Uh, and when it comes to what AI can really do when it comes to thinking, yes, it's got a bigger store, but I don't think we have a store. Yes, it's got better processing speeds, but I don't but we think we don't process <laughs> not, not in the same way. We no. when we're thinking, we're not thinking about one thing. Uh, and going all the way through or doing all the po possible refutations, we're using different relationships in varied environments throughout the events that are currently ongoing, because there are multiple events that are continually going and yeah. fading out through experiences, which obviously when looking at the ecological approach, that's how we look at the world. Humans look mm -hmm. at the world, which is different from AI. If we were to have uh, the, these AI LLMs, these AI personal assistants, as it were, uh, around the house. There are lots of things that AI just cannot do physically, obviously, because AI is not a physical being. It's not an organism mm. that can regenerate itself. It is a processing machine. That's, that's what they it's, are. It's, it's Google autocorrect. <laughs> a very smart autocorrect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Very smart, but still an autocorrect. It's, it's, it's still just a yeah, a search engine thing. Exactly. And that's the way I see it. I see in the machines as search engines. And this comes from, this is an idea that comes from uh, Harry Heff's presentation about affordances and refers to Roger Barker, I think, is the psychologist that found it. I don't, I may be wrong. I think that's the, the right uh, author. If not, I'm going to look back at my notes after this. Uh, and they were discussing affordances and behavioral settings. Long story short, because this is a very long story, you're more likely to find to find similar behavior in people that are in the same sorts of environments than not. So if you look at 100 kids and they're all in school, they are more likely to show the same behaviors than 100 kids spread around a certain country because of the behavioral setting that's been created by the society that they are living in. I.e., The school has constraints and affordances inside of the environment that guides human behavior, i.e. the children behave in certain ways. 
yes, children then misbehave, but that's now a difference in behavior, which the society, the, the group, the environment goes, that's not right. And that's where the teacher goes, you're going to get detention or you're going to be misbehaving for X, Y, Z reason. And that's where the environment, the setting doesn't necessarily suit the organism in there, which is obviously what we've discussed about the neuro, neurodevelopment stuff. Because obviously the assumption there is that it's a broken organism or machine. The assumption there is that the organisms and the relationship inside the environment is the same, which mm. isn't true because the assumptions no. from the way that they deem like cognition to work is from oh you just need to remember this thing or learning is a step-by-step -step input process output which we don't believe is true our approach is slightly different we think there's a relationship between the environment and the organism and so the behavioral setting yes can encourage or constrain certain behaviors but if it's constrained behaviors that the organism requires in order to build the relationship to learn then now it's debilitating for the organism i.e the person in that environment um yeah. so cycling backwards a little bit that that behavioral setting that we have encourages affordances and the idea of Barker was that affordances are human made most of the affordances we have in behavioral settings are human made because when you look at buildings they're human made they're man-made when you look at chairs computers they're all man-made if you take out human evolution with technology you take out the affordances that individuals have grown up with so that to me was like oh hold up that is actually the generational differences between humans' interaction with technology, because they've grown up with varying affordances, which then mm. has changed their behavioral, their, their behavior during, uh, because of the behavioral settings that they've gone through, which when you look at personal LLMs, the affordances of each human, i.e. the skills they're developing throughout the events in time, will change because of the tech that they are able to use. So is the tech uh a a thing that we can use yes but it's because it's an affordance in the environment that we're learning in that's mm. the way i see it yeah yeah and when you for me when i take that approach to technology ai isn't a partner because they're just part of the environment yeah they're not a solution because they're not solving no. a problem they're giving us affordances, which we didn't have before, but that is no different from the pen and paper or a chalk and chalkboard or a rock and a wall. And all of these things, you, if you look at the kind of disasterification of AI and it's going to destroy our brains and make it rot and blah, 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 the stuff that's been said, this, that has been said throughout time as soon as a new i suppose as soon as as soon as something new emerges it's like that is evil because we don't understand it the radio the television that is evil because we don't understand it that is evil because we don't understand it that is evil because we don't understand it that's going to steal our privacy because we don't understand it that's going to do this to us because we don't understand it that's this like yes there may be some truth in some of what is said however this will always be the case. I I had a little moment about the privacy one purely because of the way that I view extended cognition. Mm. The way extended cognition is philosophically posed, I don't agree with it. 
because okay, let's start there. Go. Well, you know this already because extended cognition assumes that it extends the functions from the brain outside of the brain, which we don't agree because we believe that it's mm. relationships within the environment which is more mm. embedded embodied and enacted cognition yeah. because extended andy clark still believes in active inference and processing predictive processing to some extent i've mm. listened to some of his more recent lectures and that's shifting somewhat but extended cognition is built on the parity principle i.e the function in the brain is extended well we mm. don't believe that the function right. in the brain is extended because it's actually already embedded in the environment or embodied in the environment um but when we look at the extended cognition philosophy and try and apply that i think i've spoken to you about this before to assault extended assault if the brain memory is functionally the same as in the phone the phone functions the same way as the brain well now the phone is part of extended cognition if the phone is part of extended cognition and someone breaks that phone deliberately is that personal assault on that person's ability to fun- cognitively function in the world. That is a, obviously a philosophical debate. It has been a, a court case previously. I've got a video coming out about it probably in a couple of weeks about this, uh, about the case Riley versus California. Uh, so when we assume this this to be somewhat true, well, now if we look at technology and instead of breaking the phone, personal assault, looking at the phone, so diving into mm-hmm. someone's phone, well, that's privacy. So is that going against personal privacy from an extended cognition like lens? Well, yes, because you can't polygraph someone, polygraph test someone unless they've given you consent, because that's not right. You shouldn't be able to test someone's brain without consent. But that is the same if we assume extended cognition and technology functions in the same way our brain does, then there should be consent given, which is obviously why we have the consent boxes, et cetera, et cetera. But there is more data than we want to consent to. And when marketing companies or businesses say, oh, you need to give us all of this. And you say, actually, no, I don't want to give you all of that. And then they reduce your ability to use the tool. Mm. I think there is a, a, a fairly solid case to say, hey, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do that because otherwise that's personal... I don't know what legally it would be called, personal, not assault, but privacy, personal uh, lack of ownership, lack of autonomy. So I should be able to use this tool without giving up my own ownership. Mm. I think there is a court case for that. So when you said privacy, I'm like, eh, not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I do agree. That was just, I was there going, I was reading out bunches of, um like things that people say and i'm like yeah apart from the privacy one which actually i kind of agree with because privacy mm, i don't want people to know everything it's just weird i don't know whether she's going to be listening but alex i i spoke with alex recently about uh ecological the ecological approach and trying to trying to explain direct perception in a way that's understandable to a layman in like less than an hour presentation <laughs> that's what, what that's what we were troubleshooting which oh, I, th- I think we're getting there but she has now recognized or, be- or become attuned to my uh, f- finicky nature with language <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously amusing she said my second brain i was like mm. my mind mm. social battery hmm <laughs> 
<laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I did a bit of probing and it got her thinking. And the more I'm particular about the language I use, the more I find it interesting that people are asking me questions that are different. And I'm like, yes. And this is where I think AI versus person through conversation mm. is different because AI doesn't oh, yeah. see the information through the same lens. Oh, as yeah. a, as a tangible, tangible example before you uh, go, the conversation I was having on YouTube, I actually got a response from someone else. Uh, this is like a reference back to the conversation on YouTube before uh, we spoke with Julia and Jeff. You know, I mentioned about the memory with the engrams. Yes. It was on that and I got a, a comment and I was like, comment, not on my video. Whose video is this? Oh, it's the engram video. Uh, and someone had asked me a question. Well, if memory isn't stored in the brain, where is it stored? And I was like, Thank you for asking that question, because that is an open door for me to go through the assumptions. You're assuming human and environment are different. I'm not. And, but I couldn't I couldn't get to that point until I'd someone asked. Yeah. Yeah. Until I batted down the other ideas, because essentially in the conversation, I went engrams. They don't exist because no one's found them. They're just neural activation which we already know uh, and then we went through various things and my my interpretation of the uh, responses through text was that the people on the other side were getting potentially emotionally attached to their responses <laughs> um getting a little bit frustrated because their the their comments were getting longer with bigger words more directed at me more uh, impact, I guess you could say, was coming with the words. And then it got to this comment. And they were essentially, to me, if it was in a conversation, they just went, okay, fine. If we do assume you're right, where's it stored sort of thing? And I was like, yes, that's where I want to be. Um, and that interaction, that relationship, the the conversations backwards and forwards is something I am I'm yet to experience with AI. Yeah. I, there, there is absolutely, because I've tried multiple <laughs> times, no way of having those interactions, which is a limitation. You think there will be in the future? I don't know. Who knows? I don't think so. My gut is saying I don't think so. Because of how it's designed. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Alex, which... Oh, great. Yeah. I love this question. <laughs> the audience goes, oh, okay. <laughs> right. When it comes to computers and direct perception, mm. because we're talking about AI here, yeah. if AI and computers have a sense, they, they sense information, i.e. they have lots of data, they then process said data... And then they output said data. So AI gets data from internet, processes stuff with AI generative models, and then outputs the verbal language. Can AI directly perceive? Because the mechanisms that is expressed in a machine, we have as a human, we have sight, we have a brain, and we have a mouth to do those three processes. So can a machine 
directly perceive. <laughs> and while John is pondering that, the example I get. Oh, yeah, go on. No, you, you go with the example. I was just going to say the example I gave Alex was self-driving cars. Can cars, through experience and driving, directly perceive? Because as a driver, you see stuff, you process stuff, and then you act on it. And that's what the car's doing. That's the indirect, typical, traditional perspective. But it would have to have all of everything. Because if... So where, where are you struggling? Like, Verbalise so, your cognition. So it has to have the prior knowledge. It has to be programmed to react. Mm -hmm. Which I think is where I'm, where my gut is going, no. But. What do you mean by program to react? So from my limited understanding, for it to be able to make a decision, it has to be given a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And if it's missing some form of data, self-driving cars, if something happens last second, can... And it's something that's never happened before. I suppose it would have to guess what to do or infer what to do based on the information it's been given, based on the environment it's been given. So, yes, I guess, but. I had the same struggle, which is why I asked Alex the same question. The because where... yes, but is my answer. Theoretically, yes, I suppose, but it's one, I don't think it. This is I'm why not... I took it out of the video, because I was like, I understand it because I know the background of the ecological approach and can argue the other side. But when you're comparing the two approaches, direct and indirect perception, it's very difficult to find a reason why one is better than the other. Because they're explaining the same phenomena. Mm. They're just two different approaches of explaining the same phenomena. But if machines can directly perceive, well, then it means that machines have, in some form, embodied cognition. Therefore, if they have some form of embodied cognition, they can learn the same way organisms can. That I don't like which means something logically has gone wrong in my process of getting there. Would you agree? Mm, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, 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 that. It, 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 I just don't like it. <laughs> because what I'm saying, I just doesn't know. It's just a no. So something is missing. And th that's what I'm thinking. And to, to me, the... I don't want to say the answer because I don't think it is an answer. The way that I'm thinking about it at the moment is that a machine is not an organism. So what does an organism have that a machine doesn't? One, a body. <laughs> I wouldn't say a machine has a body because when you look at what a machine does, it's a, it's a box. That, that's all it is, is a box. That box can be big or small. Uh, and then it has 
parts that go into it. I wouldn't say a machine is a, a body. Even if a, a machine can move around in its environment, it doesn't regenerate that. It doesn't fix that. It doesn't self-solve any of that. It needs someone or something to rebuild it. So where you see all the sci-fi stuff with a machine building a machine, I would classify philosophically the the entirety of the robot race <laughs> that is rebuilding, recreating, and uh, making the machines as one organism. Like a human, once a human's been born, if you cut yourself, it heals itself. If you cut a wire in a machine, another machine has to fix the machine or another person has to f fix a machine. So that machine itself cannot be an organism because it can't regenerate, can't fix itself. Um, which to me is one of the differences between an organism and a machine, which means if we can fix ourselves, I would argue that is part of cognition. It is regenerating the relationships between neurons in relationship to the environment. So we are changing our organism in relation to the environment to develop or create an ability, an expertise in a skill, i.e. driving. Neuron activation patterns may have changed in relationship to a certain element in the environment, which we can self-organize. Machines, I don't think, can do that. How I explain that to a layperson, no idea. Yeah. But that is my current thinking. Are you taking notes or are you just like exploding? My brain is just like, hmm. Is your brain like that? Or is that no. what you're like? That's what I'm like. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm, I am thinking. <laughs> there we go. What are you thinking about? Because when going back to the conversation we had about AI, is mm. the conversation was saying, oh, indie authors will will benefit from AI more, uh, in develop, uh, uh, independent I didn't authors or creators. That. Well, yeah, and I was I like, no, no, they won't. No, because everyone will be using it. It's just an affordance for human organisms to yeah. use inside of the environments that they want to work in to develop skills. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I didn't really know much about uh, coding, a specific well. That's not true. I had a basic understanding of what it is, but in an actual, in the environment that I'm actually in, I wasn't sure how to take the knowledge I had and use it. That was always my biggest problem with learning how to code was that like, okay, cool. I know what a constant is. I know what a variable is. I know what a loop is for while, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I get it. But how do I get from A to B of like, this is what I want to create. Um, and so that for me was the hard part and the biggest struggle with coding. Now, what I found with the AI is I had that, okay, so... This is what I'm trying to achieve. And it helped me to clarify that. Now, could I have done that with a human? Yes. Would it have been better with a human? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
but the constraints that I had afforded me to use an AI. I like that, yes. <laughs> I feel... pretty, much, pretty much, that's it. <laughs> yes. I feel like the conversation around AI is, it's directed at intelligence. Where, like, some people mm. ask about consciousness, AI consciousness. Is an AI going to be conscious? Are they going to be uh, self-organized beings? To that, I would say no, because they're not an organism. As as, as cited five minutes ago. Um, but when it comes to AI intelligence, I think AI is extremely intelligent mm. through certain metrics. And when yes. we look at the way we've measured human intelligence... Obviously, you've got the um, IQ test, which uh, there are so many people that have tried different variations and versions of it. But at the end of the day, you can't put human intelligence down to one number no, or a set of numbers. It's, it's not no. doable because intelligence, again, through our philosophical approach, is through the relationship between an organism and an environment which is embodied. Therefore, the intelligence level, i.e. the level of expertise someone has at a skill will change it's dynamic so there is no you are this level of smart there is you have this level of expertise in this environment at the moment but as the events move forwards that's going to change so the value is somewhat redundant in my view but when it comes to ai intelligence yes it's dynamic but nowhere near as dynamic as humans because humans like i say are organisms so they evolve far quicker than uh, than ai in some areas of intelligence but when it comes to store of memory or store of data more specifically yeah ai wins so when you say is ai more intelligent than a human yes if the constraint is you need to use data mm. and you need to use a lot of data and you need to process i.e calculate do mathematical calculations or linguistical patterns algorithmic patterns on said data because that is doing the same sorts of things over and over and over again which a machine is really good at which a human has evolved to make those sorts of things redundant because we don't want to do that because as we've seen it's very inefficient to actually find what we want to do from our experiences because we can look at the environment and go well, there's no point in doing those calculations because that person isn't going to do that or that tree can't do that. But a machine will do those calculations because it can. It can just brute force its way to an answer, which is where the quantum mechanics and quantum computing comes in. Quantum computing is essentially brute forcing its way to an answer just in a different way of computing. Instead of doing one calculation over and over and over, it does like one, then two, then four, then eight. I think that's right if I'm not. People that know quantum computing, tell me in the comments. But it's just doing more calculations more of the time, which humans yeah. are never going to be able to do. So does AI have intelligence humans don't have? Yes. Is it useful? In some cases. In a lot of cases, it's not, though. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that is... I'm not sure whether AI can ever overcome that limitation that constraint because I don't think that it is can. how it is designed I, and, I don't think I, it can yeah I I don't either <laughs> I think it has a 
AI is always can be used as a jumping off point, as a starting point, but that's it. It is a start. It is never an end. Mm. Uh, it's just, it's just, well. But <laughs> human cognition, where's the end? Where's that end? So how can AI end if human cognition can't end? <laughs> yeah, but that again, that's that's one of those um, traditional metrics people have put on computers and AI to assume, oh yeah, they can do this or they should be able to do that. No, because humans don't do that either. Because thinking, cognition, is done with an organism and an environment, which means... The organism, the human that's using the AI for whatever it is, has a relationship in that environment. And that's where the cognition mm. moves. So the AI doesn't finish. The event finishes. Yeah. <laughs> so the event relationship between the AI technology, the affordance to the human in the environment and the human or organism in the environment, that event ends. If the event has ended, the cognition, the cognitive relationship has ended but it doesn't mean that the AI has stopped thinking or processing data because that's still going. Yeah. Interesting to think about, isn't it? Can AI and a human have, can be, hmm. So when, when you look at a phone, take it, hmm. taking out the AI uh, automated generative models, blah, 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 and look at a phone, a phone is a companion to a human <laughs> in most cases in the first world. Um, so when you look at a phone, it's technology in the environment that affords a human opportunities of action that wouldn't be available previously, especially mm. with a smartphone. You look yeah. at a smartphone, there are more opportunities. The, the dumb phones that people are starting to use where they're going backwards in time with technology, I don't know whether you're familiar with the term, um, but being more intentional with their phone, all they're doing is adding constraints. Like when you look at it, all they're doing is adding constraints back into their environment because the smartphone has too many opportunities through affordances. But when you look at it, that's that's what you that's what you would do when you're teaching someone or you're coaching someone, you're trying to create an environment for someone that the environment is too complex for them. Mm. So they are a beginner in a skill. So they have less expertise in a skill that they're trying to develop, which is where like children, when they struggle with their phone, i.e. mental health issues because they're on the phone too much, that's not the phone's problem. That's no. the human's limited or lack of expertise in ability to deal with the opportunities, the actions that the phone affords. That is where a dumb phone can constrain the environment that they're in. And that's why mm -hmm. the whole, like, I'm going to take my social media app off the phone, blah, blah, blah. But the phone is an affordance in the environment. The technology is an affordance in the environment for the human to use. And that's what AI is. And that's what phone is. I don't see them as any different personally. No. No, I don't either. <laughs> they, they, they are exactly the same. I know, so boring. Yeah, you're boring. Um, moving on to a question that we got a while ago from AI Stories. Uh, this is one that I brought into this conversation. Uh, 
and it was uh it's from Davos and it's I'm just gonna read out my point here. It is so highly prized that AI is so good in writing emails and formal letters, but in my case, it just failed to do what I wanted it to do. And that to me is a perfect example of AI language models and the way AI perceives words and the way it perceives the way someone wants to express themselves as different because I would see AI perceiving the words through direct uh, indirect perception. It sees, okay, there's these words. I'm going to process and say, we need to add those words in and the output is this email. Yeah. Which humans, we will change the email as we're writing it because as we're writing it, as the action we is going it. on, yeah. we realize, we recognize through action that mm, actually we want to change something about that and change something about this. So we directly perceive as we write and the action of writing changes our perception of what we want to write, the, the coupling nature. Yeah. So we we end up writing an email that makes more sense to us than an AI would, because an AI's done the processing bit and just outputs it. Yeah, and doesn't really think about the environment. It's not they're not thinking about the environment. It's they they have an output and they just do the output because mm. action is separate from perception. They've perceived, yeah. now they've acted, and the acted is spouting out the answer. But in direct perception, the action isn't a program or a script or a list of things you do. It is part of perceiving in thinking. Thinking is perception and action embodied. <laughs> so in the process of thinking, you are acting, writing the email and perceiving the information that you're laying out in the email. So you're going to change that relationship, the relationship between you and the words on the page as you go. That is thinking, that is cognition, that is writing. What AI does is go, here's some words, here's some words that I should fit with this, here's the action, here's the program that I'm going to output and spit out. Which, which is why I think language models are good but they're not as good as humans because humans adjust that they can adjust uh, they can adapt as they go to use a ecological term they adapt as they go through the environment acting and perceiving coupled whereas the ai would need to adjust they adjust the programming the processing of the information for the next attempt so it may take 150 attempts for the ai to adjust to what you want Whereas a human just I, adapts. I think that's why ChatGPT has taken the world on by storm, because it it facilitates that idea of bits at a time, and that's why it's so popular. Because you can start with a basic output and go, "Oh, well, I kind of am thinking like this now." Okay, cool. I'll go and press it. Oh, yeah, nearly, but this. Yeah, nearly, but that. And and often what's said is that you can get 80% of the way there. That 20% is what we're discussing here. It's that that small, tiny bit. Well, arbitrary numbers, obviously. Not real, but arbitrary. <laughs> but I was going to say 78%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so it depends on the pencil versus 20. But that, that's true, that's true. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the thing, is it has that, because ChatGPT can be conversed with versus what GPT-3, uh, yeah, GPT-2, GPT-3, all of these older models where you couldn't have a conversation, I think that's why it's become so popular in, and also because technology is exciting and fun, but that ability to converse with, with it. And I yeah, think I, I think the conversation is closing in on the action and perception coupling yeah. because it, it brings those things together, but it's it's just a smaller event in time. The way yes, I see that. that, I was just about to go there. Yeah, go yeah. for it. And and I and that that's it. it it's something that I'm thinking about with my ChatGPT program membership thing is focusing in on that approach of like it's an event in time of being able to because it is and i still don't know whether does does the ai end the event no the the ai doesn't have control over the event the organism has has the control over the event yeah we're saying the event the event that we're referring to is the one that has the relationship between the organism and yeah. the technology uh, in the environment, because technically AI does stop an event because the event of it writing things out is an event nested inside of an event, nested in inside, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what dynamical systems are or systems are. Dynamical systems is us um, inside of there. So the event we're referring to is the relationship event between us and the technology in that specific uh cognitive environment yeah it just it, it's like i i'm one of the things with my work that i do is teaching people how to use technology and often it's a step-by-step -step process and something that i'm building now is is to do a descript and it's like i could take you step by step but that's not going to actually help anyone. And so what I what I'm recognizing and thinking about um in this, you know, cognitive, what's the word we used? Cognitive collaboration. Connected cognition. Yeah. yeah, connected cognition. Is I'm exposing the affordances and well, am I exposing or am I constraining the affordances? We'll bring both. in like both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both. When when and, you say step by step, mm, what steps? That's the problem. That right there is because a tradition, a course to do a descript would be step by step. Here's how the interface works. Here's how you get started. Well, how am I going to get started? Where am I going to get started? What am I starting with? And what experience do I have? I have already in just those two videos made a bunch of assumptions yes so if you swap out steps for events how does that reframe that's beautiful and how i'm already building it just without realizing i wonder why that is <laughs> it must be my subconscious 
Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine asked that question, and I'm like, uh, okay. What <laughs> what I will was, do? He was already struggling, and I'm like, oh, I might break you now. <laughs> What what I like to do when people ask about is the sub ask about the subconscious is if you're unaware of something that's going on, how can we measure or test it? If we can't measure or test it, then how do we actually know it's going on? Because it's an unknown unknown. Mm. So when you say, well, it happens in my subconscious, well, how do we know? that we don't know about it, mm. but that's impossible. Yeah. So your subconscious could be things that you have never been aware of, but you won't know that until you become aware of it, which means you're now aware of it. So it's no longer in your subconscious. So it becomes a redundant conversation when it comes to cognition, because you can't be cognitively focused on something in your unconscious, because if you're focused on it, it's in your consciousness. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so that, that's like that's cool <laughs> my brain is like that's cool because and, and it really does change how you consider courses and programs and educational education in general yeah it's not a stage of learning. The Fitz and Posner model is, it fits so well in this rubbish analogy. Um, rubbish being, <laughs> I don't believe in this. Uh, it, it suggests that you go from, for those that did like BTEC sport or PE at school, you're probably familiar with Fitz and Posner, just not the names of them. Uh, it goes from beginner, so novice, um, mm. uh, to intermediate, to advanced. So you can go uh, to the autonomous stage of learning where everything's autonomous um or you start off with the associate uh, or you before that is the associative so you're now associating information with the environment so you sort of see it you don't have to think about it too much and you can start, start to get the skills or you've got the cognitive so the beginner is the cognitive the intermediate is the associative and the expert is autonomous but you can be autonomous at a skill and uh, cognitively thinking about the skill at the same time so you can be a beginner and an expert at the same time which is just <laughs> shut up now yes uh, i always found like this is a beginner task this is an intermediate this is an and i'm just like no it's not it doesn't even no go away shut up you don't know what you're talking about go away expertise yeah deep into the comment section here we've got uh one from uh, another one from Doros <laughs> about obsidian in schools and universities. This was referencing Milo, Nick Milo, that's doing the presentation at university. And we, we've spoken about this before. The way I would see obsidian in universities, to me, is note taking. It's thinking. It's not about the tool. I don't think it should be about the tool. I think it should be about how to think and addressing different people's ability to think. Uh, I'm going to relate this to a thread that I've that I'm going to be starting in Discord at some point later. Actually, I think I might have already started it about reflective practice. So Elizabeth Phillips posted a video yesterday about something that it was like yeah, fine, whatever. Uh, and towards the end of it, she said journaling 
or writing reflectively essentially about what it is that I'm trying to do really helps me understand what I need to do. So she essentially told everyone to do reflective practice and that it will help them work out what they need to do if they're struggling to find it out. So if they, for example, need to do something, but they're struggling and they don't know where to start the project or where to start the task or what to do first or what needs to be done first, she's suggesting to do reflective practice and question that. But didn't go beyond that. You need to journal. It's really helpful. Great. How do you actually develop the skill of reflectively practicing? Because a lot of people go, oh, yeah, I reflect. No, you evaluate. There's a difference. Saying something's good or bad is different from reflecting. Critically thinking is a difficult skill that takes time to learn. And reflection requires critical thinking. And Obsidian, I think, is a really good tool that affords the ability to reflectively think. But if you don't have guidance in how that's done, the questions you should ask uh, or the the. Not, not necessarily the questions you should ask. I'm going to rephrase that because I don't like that. The questions that are more beneficial to ask um, and the thought processes that go through your mind when you are being reflective are different from when you're overthinking or being hypercritical. So through Obsidian in schools. Sorry? Through your mind? Yes. Yes. See, I'm I'm happy with mind. I'm not happy with brain because when you look at the mind, what are the assumptions with the mind? It's in your brain. But it's not because your mind is different from your brain. That's why there's the two terms. That's true. Do I disagree with the term mind? I don't disagree with using it. I disagree with using it in certain contexts. Um, That context to me made sense. Because cognition wouldn't have suited, because inside of someone's cognition, I would argue, is the same as inside of someone's mind. Yeah. So I see those as the same, and I I can't isolate assumptions with the mind that would differ from the assumptions with my cognition. Whereas if I was to say my brain, I know certain assumptions that will people will have. Um, Oh, my brain, that's just me in my head, storage, processing, pictures, anatomical modularities, uh, those sorts of things. So mind to me is more of a flexible term, but I do agree that it's something I need to address with my language. But I don't want to say my cognition every time because people will just disappear. Yeah. So that's Subsidian University. Much... uh, much more broad than I'm sure Davos was expecting when they wrote the comment, but yeah. Um, do you want to tackle one of your comments? Yes. Oh, but which one? There's so many. I want to touch on control and the vocabularies. This was one of the newest comments. So right. I'm curious your thoughts on creating controlled... This is uh, Time Zone Films. I'm curious your thoughts on creating controlled vocabularies or personal definitions, terms, naming, conventions you follow. I feel like I don't hear it talked about much, probably because it's overkill for most people or because everyone's needs are different. My instant reaction to that is, I suppose I get the point, but language is a dynamical system so how would if you put a vocabulary down if you write it down 
that assumes there is a finite answer to the language use, when really it's dependent on the context you're using it. Like, for example, mind, as we just said, like mind, yes, but also no, but also yes. So I like the idea as an exercise of like, well, reflective practice, but in terms of like, outside of that, it sucks <laughs> because it's context. Well, it doesn't suck, but it's context specific. So you would have to have, a, a, my assumption here is that it's kind of almost like a, di a, a, a dictionary of those terms. That's what my brain, I, <laughs> what I do when, when I, I heard that. What you did. Yeah. Yeah. What I did when I heard that. And I'm like, yes. However, I would spend all my time writing a dictionary because I could just see it. I could just, I just see it. That I think is where we have the benefit of the ecological approach and the terms that we use there because yeah. we're describing experiences. Yeah, we're describing experiences rather than things. Yeah. So instead of needing a massive vocabulary to explain these nouns, these things, that's a store, working memory, uh, those sorts of things, we're explaining processes. We're yeah. using verbs, doing works, action words, uh, mm. words, not verbs, words, to explain words. yeah words uh to explain experiences so our vocabulary as it were controlled vocabulary isn't that large because when you get into the ecological field <laughs> when, when you get into the world into the area into the conversations that happen there are not that many words that are mm. used when you go to the traditional approach, you'll have things like engram, working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, remembering, phonological loop, and it just goes on and on and on, all about specifically remembering. That That's literally the only term that we would use in the ecological approach to say remembering. <laughs> you, you are remembering this thing through, and then we would use other words again that we would use often, events. Yeah through events oh how do you do because of affordances constraints that yeah. there are very few actual words that we use because the meaning behind them is embedded in experiences in processes rather than in a, a, a dictionary definition of a thing it's much more fluid with the way that you can use the words. Yes, that brings in limitations because then people have different interpretations of how to use those words, but that then brings around conversation about what we can do with it. Affordances is obviously the one that people have spoken about the most inside of the ecological approach because an affordance is everywhere. We, we have affordances all over the place. No, because we would explain affordances through different words. Actually, it's perceiving information through the environment. Oh, no, 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 because that's affordances, no information is what we perceive in the environment affordances are the action potentials so the opportunities that we perceive yeah and that's where the conversations move on so the conversation isn't about adding more words or defining words that we've got it's about explaining the experiences through the words which is where i find it beneficial to use 
ecological terminology over traditional yes, terminology because we can actually much. explain things. <laughs> it's just so much easier. <laughs> and then, wait, what was that word? Oh, shit. <laughs> but, but that to me is where the controlled vocabulary, I think it's not necessarily controlled because obviously it's fluid, it's vocabulary, people change it as we go. But using precise words or using accurate words to something that you're trying to explain through experiences helps in communication. Mm. And when the words that are used are very fuzzy in meaning, it adds more confusion than help in my view. So that that's that's my current thoughts on that. And I think the neurodiverse environment struggle because of the controlled environments that they use. Yes, I, I think there's been discussions about that recently <clears throat> with people in that space of like, now, from an autistic perspective, with the label and all that stuff, um, neurodiversity is immediately associated with ADHD, with that condition. And someone was like, I didn't realize that all of these other things like depression and et cetera, et cetera, is a neurodiversity. It's like, yeah, oh, people are only talking about this and so the word is so fuzzy and people's experiences are now uh, the word yeah. is becoming messy and muddy because it was a stupid word to use in the <laughs> first place <laughs> Don't hold back. <laughs> oh, Say trust me. Trust me. Last last night, I thought, you know what? I should make shorts, really provocative shorts, to direct people to the longer videos. And I was like, I wonder what shorts I can make. Oh, I could make a lot of shorts. Yeah, <laughs> you could. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I see what you're saying. I think that the terms used need to be accurately explaining experiences otherwise you're going to get you're going to get misinterpretations anyway because people are going to have different experiences i.e different relationships between the conversation the environment and their, their own previous experiences and the the organismic organismic organization is not nice but the the human organization self-organization yeah you've got to be careful how you say that uh, yes yes you do organismic not asmic um but yeah so i, th I think that's um, a really interesting point a really interesting topic to talk about Might and i would, I would love to explore that further i mean that's where we can either do it in the youtube comments but i'm spending more time in my discord now i've spent a lot of time in the morgan discord i'm in my discord a lot and if you want to know where my head is at head is different from mind and brain so i'm I'm still okay with head, but it's one of those words that I'm using, but not sure about because, yeah. Um, if you want to know where my head is at, Discord is probably one of the better places to go because it's where the conversation's moving. Why is head better than just like where you're at? Because where I'm at is... The, the way I have it in my head is when I'm taking, like, saying I'm, yeah, it's the is the cognitive environment of me thinking like actively yeah. thinking whereas my head in the, the way that i think about it is a a moment in time ah yeah that's what i got from what you were saying now i'm saying that sure. i don't like it 
Yeah. Because you're always... And yeah. Because when, when I say head, my head is at, or <laughs> what my head was at, uh, it's referring to a past event in time as to that, that cognitive environment, even though I'm still moving forwards. So I'm trying to refer to where I, I was <laughs> previously. And I don't know how to reference a past moment in time without saying, hey, it's stored in my memory because it wasn't, uh, because it's still developing. Mm. And I'm not referencing where I'm at because once I've posted something in Discord, I'm now not there anymore. I've now mm. moved forward because in the process of writing it, I've acted and perceived in a different way to when I wrote it in the first place. Mm. <laughs> Uh, so I needed a, I, I still need a way to reference backwards in time, which to me, I think head makes the most sense. Brain, I don't like because it assumes memory stores. Mind, again, I don't think suits that, could be used for that. But mind to me is more action focused. So where I'm at, where my mind is at, to me are somewhat synonymous. Whereas where my head was at, or maybe it's actually the word that you put around it rather than descriptor. I was, my mind was at, my head was at, I was at, where where I was at. Yeah, I'm going to use yeah, that instead. Yeah, that might be better. I'm not yeah. going to use head yet. Yeah, I like that. There you go. Reflection on the on the go. Thank you, John. I, I appreciate the probe. Well, it, at the time I didn't. I was like, you bastard. Um, why are you making me think? But yeah. We never do appreciate it when we get the probe. Exactly, that's why I said thank you. But always after probing, it's a pleasurable experience. Yes, 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 yes. It's it's a lovely experience. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it very, very much. Uh, (laughs) Brain memory store and computer comparison issue. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, you. That was a great note. (laughs) That's literally the note. Um, So there was other comments as well related to this comment, and it's quite literally a paragraph. So I would suggest people either going, actually, no, don't bother going back because it's it's a long comment and you need to listen to a lot of stuff. So I'm just going to summarize what I was thinking at this point. Um, The idea is that the brain memory store, we've we've discussed this before uh, or earlier, the brain memory store and the computer comparison issue uh, is that they act very similarly, but they're not. So how do we essentially go about explaining this difference, this thing. Um, And Davos was exploring this and another comment also explores this. Uh, And I kind of want to give myself a little bit of a get out, but also refer people to a past episode and say, go watch our episode when we spoke to Jeff and Julia about this. System versus machine. Yeah. was For my reply, it's system versus machine. That's probably been for me the biggest like ah yeah and i use that analogy now because it's actually really helpful it's like a system versus a machine and and that gets me where i want to be and and moves the conversation to ask those questions that are like exactly mm-hmm. exactly yes it's where i want the conversation to actually go this is a massive aside squirrel moment here. I use an egg for my meal planning uh, button on the commander bar. And when you said exactly, I was like, egg, exactly, because there's an egg in front of me on my on my obsidian. Yeah. 
the, the, was... this is this is where I go when when I'm free to think. That's right. Right. I was going to say where yeah. my brain goes, and I was like, nope. Where my mind goes, nope. Where my head goes, nope. Where I go, yes. <laughs> I literally. <laughs> I went through. Oh yeah, I was doing that earlier. That's why I took a pause for a minute. I was like, where I my brain, no, I yes. I it's think like, I'm it's a selection think for me, option. at the moment I'm defaulting to I. Mm. Because it is, it is me. It's yeah. me as an organism. Yeah. What I this is going to be very reflective, maybe too deep for some people. I feel like it's vulnerable to describe experiences through a first person lens. This is how yes. I thought. This is what I was thinking because it's vulnerable. It's because ownership. It's, You're owning yeah. it. You're owning exactly. your own. It's experience. not saying, oh, my brain, my mind, and this other thing. No, it's me. Yeah. It was me. And I feel I feel vulnerable describing my experiences mm. through a first person lens. Because you're yeah. saying, Yeah, I thought that. And if that's something that was potentially negative, wrong, or any other negative connotation that you have with those words. It's, it's potentially dangerous. It's essentially damning. <laughs> you could get cancelled online for saying those sorts of things sometimes. Like, oh no, 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 that was a, that was a past thing that I had in my memory. Brain the past store me wasn't yeah. me. Yeah, man. No, it, it was it was you. It was exactly you. You have now evolved, <laughs> learned from past experiences, and that's where I think um, when you have negative experiences, it's very hard to come back from that in the real world now because people recognize yeah it was you in the past but it was still you <laughs> change is difficult change is very difficult and developing expertise which is what change typically is takes a long time um yeah and i guess on top of that i want to add my uh, my last comment i know john you've got a few more metaphors only work in the specific examples again i'm going to reference the jeff and julia uh, conversation yeah, I feel like we'll be doing that for a while because we discuss metaphors in there and metaphors for the, from the ecological approach doesn't work. The, the video snapshot, the picture video analogy that I've used, the metaphor that I've used, I think I, I knew it was flawed, but it, I think, is the best way that I've come up with anyway to explain the differences but when you go into how videos are actually made, obviously they're made through pictures. <laughs> and when you look yeah. at some of the uh, 3D motion um, film studios now, they've got like four different cameras that are doing shutter speeds at different times. So you can film like four different things in the background, which is really cool. Watch uh, Marquez video or watch um, Abraham's video. Can't remember her first name for some reason. Uh, Cleo Abraham. Um, Cleo Abraham's and Marquez, they did videos about this and cameras sort of go at different times we don't do that as as organisms as humans so metaphors through the ecological approach is constraining but i think it needs to be constraining in order to get the experience across um or translate across i don't like translate mm, no oh what's the thing that bs um, people do British Sign Language. People do. They don't translate. They interpret. That's the word. Yeah, I think uh, metaphors are a good way to in like help the interpretation of the ecological approach from the traditional yeah. approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. one of my 
one of my things this was fun um we were talking about like um hypnosis yes and <laughs> Um, and Thomas was referencing the fact that hypnosis doesn't work when you know how it works. It's the same thing where you can't be amazed by magic tricks after you know them. Someone who did a little bit of that too. Yes. I think we all dabbled. <laughs> I dabbled. Yeah, like, yes, but you can then, with those assumptions, and that, like, you can play on that. A good example of this is what I put down is like Penn, Penn and Teller Fool Us, which is a TV show where I've seen actual like um, magic use like misdirect. The word I put, which is the best example, is misdirecting misdirection. Is yeah. they on purposely used a common technique to misdirect Penn and Teller. And it worked. You did this thing. No. I thought you'd see that. I put it in there on purpose, which is that concept in in um, hypnosis that's called utilization. It's using the responses of the person to change how you act. Huh. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Good strides. <laughs> and so, yes, exactly. You can actually facilitate. If they understand how it works, you can, if you are aware of that, which obviously means a one-on-one -on -one engagement, you can use that. I had um, someone who um, was terrified of the idea of being hypnotized, but wanted to experience it. And so the suggestions that I used were changed to avoid that triggering moment of like being scared, which means you wouldn't do it. it it's just adapting the environment. Crazy that. Um, constraining it gave, gave us an affordance to be able to do it this way instead. And so that idea is just, yes, yes. I would say, I wouldn't say you changed the environment. No, the environment. Would, because you as the organism, change the relationship between you the other person in the room yeah. and the environment yes. by adding in certain words yeah so those words either added in uh, a constraint for the other person thinking about certain elements uh, or afforded them something or attuned them to something because obviously affordances can be uh, attunement tools so to, tools to help people focus on something in specific yeah, yeah. Right, and then you have another comment. I do. Which I, I'm intrigued to see what your interpretation of this was because I'm looking at the note and I'm going, hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah. So um, it was really, it was a bit at the end hmm. that got me. So it was like, so in the end, I just say, it, and this is a long comment. This is a tiny snippet of a long comment. So please Context. go yeah go read it <laughs> or i think it's not it'll come up on the screen anyway but yeah so in the end i'll just say uh, and what uh Davos was talking about was around um <clears throat> pkm words and the labels of them all that stuff and for me in the pkm world the labels assume an endpoint like 
there is an end. It's finite. A note is done. It is finished. When we have discussed, that is no. It's a no. I had an interesting experience yesterday. Oh! Uh, yeah, I, I joined Mike in his Obsidian University course. It's a cohort-based course about Obsidian, as you can imagine. And for so i'm presenting next week about my book library and for the presentation they were it was talking about notes and things and there was a confusion between what a note is and what a file is <laughs> because obviously in obsidian you have lots of files and the presenter at the time was using the word note but they also used the word dashboard and they had a dashboard which went down into a dashboard they were using the power system, which went down into another dashboard, which down went down into notes. And so they're said, all files. But someone said, aren't they all notes? And he's and the presenter said, no, 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 no. There is a dashboard and a note. So I said, they're all files. That person has added a meaning to the file. Hmm. And that is where I try and avoid using those abstract terms what is a note words written on a file which means a note is just a file <laughs> when you try and find a difference between a file and a note there isn't one no and i think that's kind of these there is so much of an assumption that there are there are endpoints in in p in the pkm space when I don't believe that. Like, there isn't an end. It never ends. It's continuous. What's it? Existence. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's when you die. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, your notes, I, I suppose, the files that you create, the notes, the... that experience... The environment and the relationship between you and the environment and your notes and all of that lovely stuff, I don't, it doesn't end. It's continuous. So I would argue it does end, but it ends multiple times. Hmm, yes. Yeah? <laughs> because the relationship between the human and the note or the file or whatever you want to call it, um, the relationship between that is at a point in time, i.e. in an event, event and you're working yeah. with it. I would say the event ends then, I suppose. Which yeah. is what you're coming to. Yeah, the event working with the note can end, but it can also start again. Mm. And I would argue when it does end, that's when you've forgotten it. I.e. you cannot consciously recall it. Hmm. But yeah. but as soon as you perceive it again in some other way, the event has now been re-triggered, which can come from a variety of things, which is where your focus, your attunement, when we think about the blanket, the when you have a, a blanket all the way out, push down. You I love the blanket thing. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. 
push down, you're, you're focused down on that point. And as time goes on, the event decreases, your, your, the pressure on the blanket goes up and up and up. And then when something triggers it, oh, you, you push back down in that event. And that could be pushed down further because it's looser, I guess, to use this analogy um, in that area. But it might not be in the exact same place. It might be slightly to the left, slightly left, to the right. right yeah. So, yeah, I, th I think it, they do end just multiple times. Yeah. So, thank you for listening. And you can hear us all or see us all next week. Bye.